You ready to dive into the Word of God and see what He has to share with us this morning? Let's pray. Father, we come before You on the brink of Bible study, on the brink of the preaching, the proclamation of the truth of Your Word, the truth of Your own personal revelation about Yourself, about who You are, about who we are in You, about who and what we should aspire to be. I'm asking you to please come now and instruct us. Holy Spirit, please illumine our minds, open our hearts to be receptive to the gospel, the gospel that perhaps we know very well, but yet is still relevant and powerful and important every day of our Christian life. Help me, Lord, to be clear, to be concise, to be accurate. And may my dear friends, my brothers and sisters here, may they receive the word implanted with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin with a question. What does God hate? Perhaps not a normal question to open a sermon with, but I think it's a very important one. You see, we're not dealing with a frustrated principal, or an angry judge, or an out-of-control police officer. We're dealing with an omnipotent creator God. One who has all power that can possibly exist in His hands. It's not just that God is more powerful than anyone else. That's not the issue. The issue is that by His very nature, God's power defines the reality of all other types of power, which are inherently lesser. God molds us like clay. He can snuff us out in an instant. Therefore, when approaching Him, I think it behooves us to figure out not just what He likes. That's important too. But we better figure out what He doesn't like. And we better figure out how that relates to how we ought to live. Now, there are perhaps a number of correct answers to that question, what does God hate? We could perhaps, in my opinion, rather generically answer sin or evil, and that's a correct answer, but I don't think it, it, it's good enough. I don't think it's nuanced enough. I don't think it gets at the heart of the issue enough, because we as human beings are horribly corrupt, aren't we? It's very easy for us to glibly let the word sin roll off our tongue. Yes, God hates sin. I ought not to sin. Let's move on with my day. I don't think that that type of answer gets at the heart of what the issue is. And I think as we study the Scripture in my opinion at least, one answer, one pattern of human behavior rises to the top as far as what God truly despises in His heart of hearts. And it's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. I think God hates a hypocrite. There's a number of places that we could go to look at this, but I'll just take you to one. You don't have to turn anywhere. Just think about this. In the Gospels, the account of Christ's life What was perhaps his principal antagonist, his principal opponent in in terms of a group? It was the Pharisees, right? Religious ritualists. We might say professional religious hypocrites. In Christ's confrontations with the Pharisees, what was his chief issue with them? What was it that he took them to task for over and over and over? It was their hypocrisy. He called them whitewashed tombs. 
meaning clean, pristine, perhaps dressed up on the outside, and inside filthy, rotting, decaying. He called them a brood of vipers. I get the image in my mind of of a, a viper poised to strike, venom dripping off of its fangs as it prepares to sink its fangs into you and do you harm. Quoting Jeremiah, he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They know the right words to say. They know the right actions to partake in. They, they know the right places to show up in. They know how to pray. They know how to give to the Lord's work. But inside, they want nothing to do with Him. It's all about the externals. I think God hates a hypocrite. I'd like you to invite you to open your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2. Because for a number of months now, Skylar and I have been working through this book. Very slowly, very methodically. Just seeking to let it really take root in our hearts and our minds. And a few months ago, we were toward the tail end of chapter 2 in the book of Romans. And I read a passage there that absolutely chilled me to the bone. I, I, if I recall correctly, I think I actually got cold chills as I read this, as I was preparing to meet with Skylar. And I'd like to share that with you this morning. Romans chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew, stop, we've got to get some context. We cannot do justice to the text by just diving into the middle of a chapter in the middle of a letter that Paul wrote to a body of people 2,000 years removed from us and expect to have any idea what he's talking about. We've got to get some context of what Paul had in mind, where he's coming from, where he's going to wind up, who he's talking to. You need to think of the book of Romans in two parts, two sections. Chapters 1 through 11 are basically Paul's defense of the gospel. This is his explanation, his defense, his argumentation, his rhetoric for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In in particular, justification by faith. Paul wants to make abundantly clear to every reader of this letter that they bring nothing to the table in terms of salvation. They have nothing to offer God in terms of earning His favor. It is all purely based upon the mercy of God that He pours out on us in His grace by giving us the faith to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul desperately wants people to get that. To understand that any preconceived notions of self-righteousness that they might be bringing into their religion are utterly unfounded. In chapters 12 to 16, he's going to build off of that foundation of gospel truth. And he's going to say, okay, now, in light of this, in light of the gospel that I've just spent the last 11 chapters laying out for you, now here's how you live. Here's what you do. Now go, go do it. Live for Christ. Cling to Christ. So, the first 11 chapters, a defense of the gospel. In the first couple of chapters, which is where we're at, Paul, again, he knows that human beings by nature bring self-worth into their contemplation of God. He knows perfectly well that human beings think far higher of themselves than they ought to. And so he needs to just tear that down right off the bat. He needs to strip away any pretense that we might have as we come to this text that we're worth anything apart from Christ. And in particular, Paul recognizes that during the first century, Judaism, Judaism, the the religion of the Old Testament, if you will, exerted a tremendous influence 
on Christianity. The Jew, there were many of the Christians who began this religion were Jews themselves. And in fact, the, both the Jews and the Romans really regarded Christianity as nothing more than a sect of Judaism for the first century or so of its existence. You can see this in some of the extra-biblical writings of the Roman uh, politicians and whatnot. And Paul himself has experienced how when Jewish Christians mix with Gentile Christians... These Jewish Christians had a tendency to apply the legalistic requirements of the law of Moses to their Gentile brethren, unjustly, unrighteously. Paul had experienced this firsthand. In Galatians chapter 2, you can read about how when he came to Antioch, he met Peter there. And Peter, perhaps the, the leader of the 12 apostles... Peter had been sympathizing with the Gentiles there in Antioch. He'd been eating with them, fellowshipping with them, being friendly toward them. But then some Jews, some Judaizers from Jerusalem came up to Antioch. And Peter started to get a little intimidated as they began to pressure him to hold to the law, pressure him to hold to the legalistic requirements of the law of Moses. And he began to draw back from the Gentiles. And Paul said, no way. Absolutely not. He confronted Peter to his face publicly. So Paul, and and, and this incident in Galatians happened years before Paul wrote Romans. So when he comes to the book of Romans, he knows very well the possible influence that Jews are exerting upon Gentile believers. So when he writes, but if you bear the name Jew, you need to understand he's not using figurative language. He's really talking to Jews. Now, you might say, well, that's wonderful. He's talking to Jews. How does that help me? (laughs) If he's not talking to me, what do I get out of it? Well, what I want to show you over the next couple of minutes is that I think there are some striking and sobering parallels, sobering similarities that sort of span the, 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 the test of time between Jews of the first century and Christians of the 21st century. And we're going to see that here in the next couple of verses. Parallels that span the test of time. Let's take a look at it. Back to verse 17. So if you bear the name Jew and look at the qualifications or the characteristics that he gives for these Jews. If you rely upon the law and you boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. These Jews rightly relied upon the law of Moses. This was their contract sort of their covenant their constitution, their agreement with Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The law was what they hung their hats on in terms of distinction. It was not because of themselves that God chose them. It was purely out of His own favor. But He gave them the law to prove to them that the promises that He had made to Abraham 400 or so years earlier were not null and void. They were fully enforced. They were fully in effect. They definitely relied on the law as a part of their heritage. They boasted in God. They were the only people on the face of the planet as a national entity that had a special relationship with the creator God of the universe, the living God. I think they boasted rightly. Now, to be sure, they took it to an extreme of unrighteousness at times. But there is reason to boast in God, I think. Furthermore, they knew God's will. Why? Because they had his law. The law spelled out for them exactly what God wanted, exactly what he expected of every human being that was going to attempt to please him. They knew God's will. 
And they were able to take that law, that body of evidence, that body of literature that God had given them in the form of the Torah, and they were able to take it and look at life around them and approve the things that were excellent or the things that were important because they were taught, instructed from the law from an early age. These Jews had every reason to be proud of their heritage as long as they didn't take it too far, which they often did. Now, consider us. That's all well and good, fine for the Jews. But what about us? Well, we don't really boast on the law, do we? No, but we do boast in the cross, or we rely on the cross. We rely upon the cross of Christ. Paul said, without Christ's resurrection, if that's not true, then we're hopeless. We have no hope. We might as well hang it up and stop trying. But the cross had to come before the resurrection. You can't have a resurrection without a death. So we do very much rely on the cross, I think. We still boast in God, but, but in the form of Christ now, don't we? We boast in Christ as our only Lord and Savior. We better be boasting in Christ as our only Lord and Savior. If we're boasting in ourselves, we've got a rude awakening coming. Knowing God's will, approving what is important, I think those translate exactly. I don't think we even have to manipulate the words. I think we know God's will if we study the scriptures where he's revealed it. I think we are capable of approving what is important if we study the scriptures where he tells us what is important. And finally, although the law is certainly a part of our Bibles, we are instructed more by the gospel now, I think. We're really instructed by the whole text of scripture but what we really need to focus on is the gospel. And in fact, the law itself was a foreshadowing of the gospel. It was God's attempt to communicate to these Jews that without a sinless sacrifice on their behalf, they had no hope of pleasing him. There's no way anybody could possibly keep the entire law, even for one day of their life. And James tells us that if you violate one aspect of the law, you've broken them all. So I think there are tremendous parallels between these Jews that Paul is talking to and us today. And I think the parallels continue. Take a look at verse 19. And if you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. He's talking about the spiritually blind here. He's not talking about physical loss of sight. Spiritually blind people. The Jews were a guide to them, again, because they had the very words of God. They're a light to those who are in darkness. The rest of the world, those who are apart from God, have no hope. There is no hope apart from Christ. All the, the only thing that they have to look forward to is an eternity spent in torment. Eternal separation from their Creator. The Jews knew this, as we do today. A corrector of the foolish. Some of your translations will say teacher. But really the word in Greek, paidutin, it, it does have the, the idea of instruction, of teaching. But it has a nuance to it of correction. Correcting something wayward. Again, the Jews knew human behavior because they themselves recognized it. They had had it spelled out for them in the law, just how corrupt and decrepit humans were. And they knew perfectly well what the antidote was for that human behavior. They knew how to correct the waywardness of themselves and the people around them. 
They were a teacher of the immature. I mean, hey, you know, if you're going to correct human behavior, why not fix it before it goes bad, right? Why not right the ship before it goes off course? So if you're going to teach people the truth, do it when they're young. We strive for that here. I hope every one of you who is involved in children's ministry, you recognize the tremendous significance of teaching truth to little minds that are like sponges eager to soak it up. I hope you do not take your responsibilities lightly teaching these children. There is, in my opinion, no greater calling than to instruct children. The Jews had in the law, we continue in verse 20, the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. Now, this is interesting to me. This is interesting what Paul does here. I want to talk to you for a minute about the Greek article. In English, when we say article, we would think of the word the, okay? And the Greek article can be used in place of the word the. It can also be used to replace a personal pronoun, him, her, his. It can be omitted if the writer desires. It's a very flexible and powerful tool. What's interesting to me is in this text, Paul specifically and deliberately puts both, puts the article, the Greek article, before both knowledge and truth. What's he trying to say here? I think what he's getting at is, this is not just any knowledge. This is not just any bit or parcel of truth that the Jews had access to. They had the knowledge. They had the truth. The only knowledge, the only truth that exists. Christ himself, remember John 14, 6? I am the way and the truth and the life. It wasn't just that Christ knew the truth. He embodied the truth in his being. He literally was the truth. We have the knowledge and the truth as well, just like the Jews did. And you know what this means? Because we have the knowledge and the truth. Because we have that. Keep going. It makes hypocritical conduct from the Jews and from us all the more heinous. Because we are instructed accurately from the law, because we know God's will, because we know exactly what He does want and what He doesn't want, it makes it absolutely inexcusable when we engage in hypocritical behavior. There's no place in it in the life of a Christian, just as there was no place for it in the life of a Jew, which was the point Paul was trying to get them to see. He wanted them to understand that they needed to stop resting on the laurels of their biological heritage. And they needed to start embracing the free gift of salvation in the sacrifice of Christ. The message to us is really no different. Now, we may have been taught that many years ago, that it's not about us, it's about Christ. But do we live like that? Do we live fully reliant, fully dependent upon our position in Christ as the only means by which we are regarded as justified in the sight of God? Do we live like it? That's a question that we need to think carefully about. As I said, what the Jews had, what we have in terms of knowledge and truth makes their conduct even more despicable. And Paul's about to lay it out for us. And it's not pretty. 
Let's take a look. Verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? We might say, do you not practice what you preach, you Jew, you Christian? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? Verse 22, you who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Now let's stop there for a minute. Paul does something really delightful here, I think, in, in, in the Greek text. He, and, and we don't see it in English so much. In Greek, the word steal is klepto, okay? The word for commit, the verb for commit to commit adultery is moikouane, okay? Now, what Paul does is, He writes both words back to back with no intervening words, but he changes the form of the word to give a different emphasis. First, he places klepto in the infinitive, just meaning that it doesn't have a specific context. It doesn't have a specific act that he's referring to. He's thinking generally about theft. That's what the infinitive is. Then he turns right around and he places it in the indicative, which is referring to a specific act. So in effect, what he's saying is, you, on the one hand, you say stealing is wrong, and then before, barely before the words are out of your mouth, you turn around and take something that doesn't belong to you. You preach that adultery is wrong, not a specific act that you know someone has committed, but in general, and then you turn right around and commit adultery. And he puts the words back to back, kleptane kleptase and moikouane moikouase, I think, to draw attention to the ridiculousness of the situation. It adds to the contrast by putting them back to back like this. I think he's trying to highlight the the utter ridiculous despicability of how these Jews are acting, how they're behaving themselves, the conduct that they are engaging in. I think he wants us to see the striking divide between their teaching and their actions. And then he ups the ante in my opinion, in the next phrase. Middle of verse 22. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, what does he mean by that? Well, it's interesting to me that Paul doesn't say you who teach that we ought to abhor idols. He says you who abhor idols. You genuinely, in your heart of hearts, without any hypocrisy, You genuinely despise idolatry. The word really is better images. You despise any image created in the form of anything that exists on the earth for the purpose of being worshipped. We know from the Old Testament that the reason that is so heinous in God's eyes is because he is the only one who should be worshipped and he has no physical form. Moses in his commentary on Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 4, he says... You Israelites, you saw no form on the mountain. Speaking of Mount Sinai. You not saw no form, but you heard a voice. You heard the voice of God. Therefore, as if to explain the second commandment, he says, you shall not make for yourselves anything that resembles anything. Because the only acceptable object of worship is the Lord God himself. And he has no form for you to make an image of him. These Jews genuinely detested idolatry. They genuinely detested imagery. But then they turned right around and robbed temples. What does that mean? What is, that, what is Paul getting at? Well, in the ancient world, you need to understand that a temple 
was a bit of a treasure house. It was a bit of a repository for wealth. Worshippers, pagan worshippers, would bring their offerings to the god or goddess, and they would leave it there in hopes of gaining their favor and you know, having a good crop or having their business blessed or whatever the case may be. And the priests would happily collect the money or the, the jewels or the gold or whatever it was, and they would store it in the temple. So the context of what Paul seems to be getting at is, you say on the one hand that idolatry is wrong. You say on the one hand that images are despicable, but then you turn right around and break into these pagan temples and you steal their dirty money so that you can have a better life. Now, I've got to tell you, that hits close to home. We are very good at disdaining the world. Preaching and railing against the corrupt world system that we are sometimes a part of. But do we then turn right around and partake of it? Do we act like the world? Do they recognize that there's any difference between us and them? I think that's the point that Paul's making here. You, you're not just making this up. You genuinely do have a hatred for idols. But you don't act like it. Because you happily help yourself to the idolatrous wealth that you can gain access to. I hope that doesn't describe us. Well, in verse 23, I think Paul really begins to deliver the killing blow here. (laughs) Verse 23. You who boast in the law... Through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? Now, let's get one thing straight. Paul's not asking a question. There is a question in the Greek text. This is not a bad translation, but it's a rhetorical question at best. Paul is not asking whether God is being dishonored, whether God is being insulted, whether God is being slandered, whether God is being reviled here through their actions. He's making a statement of fact. You know good and well, Jews, you know good and well, Christians, that if you act this way, you are dishonoring and insulting God. And, and let's not play any games here. We're not talking only about theft and adultery. Paul just used those as a couple of examples. He's talking about any way, any way in which you violate the law of God, which we have in the 66 books of our canonical Bibles. That's exactly why he says you dishonor God when you break the law. He gives two specific examples and then he broadens it out and says... Any way in which you violate God's commandments, you're guilty. You're guilty. You insult Him. Now, I'm quite confident that none of us would consciously, knowingly, willfully insult our God. I think Paul's point, the question that he wants us to contemplate is, do our actions insult God? Does our lifestyle insult God? Does our temper insult God? Does the way we speak to our wife insult God? Does the way we rear our children or not rear them insult God? Does the way we relate to our coworkers that really just irritate us and get under our skin, does that insult God? Does the way we relate to people in traffic, <laughs> does that insult God? Does our, do our entertainment choices insult God? Does our effort, our focus, our motivation in the body of Christ whatever local body you're a part of, does your lack of focus and dedication to the people of God insult God? 
Well, it gets worse. Verse 24. And this is the part, really, that when I read it a number of months ago, uh, this just chilled me. To think that I could possibly cause this type of response. You see, if we violate God's law when we know better, we insult Him. But have you ever thought about what you cause others to do to God when you violate His law and they know you're a Christian? They know you are someone who is supposed to be following His law. Take a look at verse 24. For, Paul says, because the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You know, the word blaspheme, it's an interesting word. I think there are some words, in my opinion, that are of such power and singular meaning that I think they kind of jump from one language to the other relatively intact. Sure, you have to change the letters, you have to transliterate them into the letters of a different language, but they show up in the other language very similar to the point that we could recognize it. Blaspheme is such a word. Take a look at the next slide. In Greek, it's blasphemeo. You could probably recognize it if you saw it transliterated. I think the reason for that is because this is such a horrible, horrible word. Do you know what it means? It means generically to slander, to deliberately, to willfully, intentionally speak an untruth about someone else's character for the purpose of misrepresenting them and tarnishing their reputation. That's what it means to blaspheme. But in a biblical context, it has a more specific emphasis. It means particularly, pointedly, to do that to God. To speak evil of God. To ascribe evil to God. To say that Christ is a product of the devil. Which is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day did. And they were condemned for it. What Paul is getting at is when we... As Christians, violate the law of God. We cause others, unbelievers, to blaspheme Him. That's terrible. I don't want to do that. You know, when people look through the window of your life, what do they see? Do they see you or do they see the Lord Jesus Christ? Can they even see through your window at all? Do you have the blinds drawn and the curtains pulled so that no one can get on the inside? Would your neighbors even know you're a Christian? Now, we have to ask an important question at this point. What do we say to these things? Where do we go from here? Are you feeling a little beat up right now? I am. And I think Paul wants you to be. But I'm convinced, I'm absolutely persuaded beyond a shadow of a doubt that he does not want you to stay beat up. He does not want you to stay beat down. There's two primary reasons that I think this. Number one is, again, going back to the context of the letter. Remember, we're just taking one passage out of a letter 
that was intended, I think, probably to be read in one sitting. I'm sure he sent this to the church in Rome and he anticipated that they would read it straight through from start to finish. So they would see his entire flow of thought. And Paul does not end on a negative note. He needs to tear us down in the beginning in order to build us up by the end. By the time he gets to chapter 12, flip over to Romans 12. He begins to preach triumphantly and victoriously. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, because of the last 11 chapters, because of everything that I've laid out for you, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because you are so broken, because you are such a hypocrite, because you are so unrighteous, and God is so merciful to cast His favor upon you, to love you, to care for you, to give you faith as a gift. Because of all that, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Don't stay beat down, Christian. Take the stinging rebuke of the Word of God and use it as a catalyst to drive you toward Christ. Have the mind of Paul in Philippians where he says, I have not yet attained perfection, but one thing I do, one thing I do. I forget what lies in the past. And I press on. I strain forward eagerly for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Don't make the mistake of walking out of here depressed if you recognize yourself in any way in this text. Don't make that mistake. Walk out of here galvanized to action with a little bit of steel in your spine, a little bit of purpose in your step, maybe even a little bit of bounce in your walk because you know that what has just been described, if it describes you, is not where you will stay. That is not where you will remain in hypocrisy. You will rise up through the Holy Spirit and through your position in Christ. That's the first reason, I think, that Paul wants us to respond joyously and triumphantly to his message. The second, go back to chapter 2 for a moment. If you notice, in verse 24, Paul writes the phrase, just as it is written. Anytime you see that, anytime you see as it is written, understand that the writer of the New Testament scripture is referring to the Old Testament either through a direct quote or a paraphrase or even an allusion. In this case, Paul is referring to Isaiah chapter 52, which L.A. read for us earlier. Go ahead and turn there. I want you to see this in all of its glory. And I'm not going to read all nine verses that L.A. read. I'm just going to cherry pick a couple here. Isaiah 52. And let's go to verse 5, because this is specifically where Paul is taking Romans 2.24 from. Isaiah 52.5. Now therefore, God says, what do I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people have been taken away without cause? Again, the Lord declares, those who rule over them howl, and my name is continually blasphemed all day long. Here's the situation. The Jews were in exile, or they were going to be in exile. They were going to be taken out of their land as punishment for disobedience, for idolatry. 
They were taken out. They were cast into Assyria and Babylon at various times. Isaiah speaking to Judah, so this would be Babylon. And the pagans that they were in bondage to looked at them and said, well, their God couldn't even save them. Their God was powerless to stop our imperial might. You see this in Nebuchadnezzar himself in Daniel. The arrogance, the pride, the overweening self-righteousness of Babylon. And they said, well, if that's all the power that their God has, he must not be very powerful at all. Blaspheming his name. Saying that the God of the universe is anything less than the supreme being that exists. But, notice the context of the whole chapter. This is not a chapter of doom and gloom. This is not a chapter of judgment and oppression and destruction. This is a prophecy of restoration, of redemption, of joy. He starts off in verse 1. Awake! Awake! Wake up, Jews! Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments. For the, I'm skipping down. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no longer come into you. Go down to verse 6. Therefore, God says, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one who is speaking. Skip down to verse 9. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. You see... God knew perfectly well the blasphemy that was being committed against his name by Babylon and other pagan nations. And he was not for a minute going to stand by and let that state of affairs rest. God is extremely jealous about his glory. He will not give it to another. He will not allow it to be compromised. He will not allow it to be cast aside or ignored. His glory is of paramount importance to him. And he will not let the blasphemy that the other nations are committing against his name through the disobedience of Israel stand. So he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to lift you out of the gutter that I've cast you into. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to drive out all the uncleanness and all the impurity from you. You're going to know my name. You're going to wake up, Jews. You're going to know my name and I'm going to redeem you. I think it's kind of a little... Simple formula for spiritual victory. Wake up. Recognize who you are and who God is. Know Him through the revelation of Jesus Christ and be redeemed. That's the context of the quote that Paul pulls from in Romans 2.24. And you better believe the Apostle Paul knew the context of the chapter he was pulling from. He was not ignorant of the Scriptures. He used the Scriptures over and over and over and over again to prove that Jesus was the Christ. So I think Paul wants us to take this dire warning against hypocrisy, this dire warning against personal insults through our conduct, this dire warning against causing other people to blaspheme the name of our God. He wants us to take that and recognize that we need to change. Feel the sting, but then change, I think is the way Paul would put it. And I think that's what we need to engage in today as we walk out of here. Do we act hypocritically? I think we all do. I don't think there's a single person in this room or this building or any church in Beckley or America that doesn't act like a hypocrite at times because we know the law of God. We know 
the commandments of God. We know that God alone should have all of our worship, yet every day of our life we worship other things. We worship food or sleep or sex or uh, friends or relatives or work or play. Let's not be like that anymore, Daniel's Bible Church. Let's rise up as I think Paul intended us to and let's live victoriously in and through Christ by the illumination and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this hard truth. I needed it. And I thank you so much for blessing me with it. I hope it is my earnest, sincere hope and prayer, Father, that my dear friends, my brothers and sisters here, would take this word, would take this message from you and use it to be spurred on to love and good deeds, to be spurred on to live righteously before our God. May you be glorified through our lives, not merely by our teaching, not merely by our preaching, but through our actions. In the name of Jesus, amen.